the United States, by with its invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan seventeen uh, years ago, made the greatest strategic blunder in its history. Uh, this is also characteristic of late empires, where they engage in these military fiascos. Have we come to the twilight of the American empire? The end of our civilization? Chris Hedges has a new book called America, the Farewell Tour. If you're a poor person of color and you live a live in a de-industrialized section of a city, you're worth nothing. Your body is worth nothing to corporations on the street. But uh, if you're locked in a cage, uh, you can generate fifty or $60,000 a year. So prisons for me are uh, an important window into the intention uh, of these corporations. Chris Hedges, next on Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show. And be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Uh, most of those who resisted successfully, those icons that we all hold up, Sitting Bull, Malcolm X, Martin, Emma Goldman, were defeated, at least in the calculation of the powerful. But the power of their moral presence and their courage is one that sustains resistance and rebellion itself. And in that sense, I do argue, as you correctly point out, that there is a, a spiritual element to resistance. My guest is Chris Hedges. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, where he served as the Middle East Bureau Chief and Balkan Bureau Chief for the paper. He previously worked overseas for the Dallas Morning News, the Christian Science Monitor, and NPR. He writes a weekly column for the online magazine Truth Dig out of L.A. and is host of the Emmy Award-winning RT America show on Contact. Uh, Chris Hedges holds a Master of Divinity degree from Harvard Divinity School, is the author of bestsellers American Fascists, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, and was a National Book Critics Circle finalist for War as a Force That Gives Us Meaning. He's taught at Columbia University, New York University, Princeton University, and the University of Toronto. He currently teaches college credit courses in the New Jersey prison system. His latest book, and our topic today, is America the Farewell Tour. Welcome, Chris Hedges, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. Tell me about the title, America, the Farewell Tour. What, what's America's final show? Well, it, it, the, it is kind of cute, I suppose, but uh, the idea was to travel around the country. I think I reported from almost 10 states uh, and just show the devastation, both physical, uh, in terms of infrastructure, uh economic, of course, and finally moral in particular, you know, what a society in decline does to its citizens and the kinds of pathologies that 
arise out of a decayed culture, hardly unique to our culture. Uh, I studied classics at Harvard, and one can look at many of the same pathologies arising in the latter part of the Roman Empire. Um, so th there are horrific consequences, uh, personal consequences, uh, for people who are trapped in dysfunctional systems where they stagnate. Uh, and, uh, and these are exhibited through pathologies such as gambling, which I write about, uh, heroin, addiction, suicide, uh, sexual sadism. Uh, and I kind of went to the epicenters of where all this was uh, to write about what was happening uh, across the country to, to easily half of, of the country, if not more. You begin your book uh, in the chapter Decay, describing the city of Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, with its loss of industry, its selling off of its assets, its indebtedness, except Scranton does make weapons. And, and you write this sentence that just stuck out to me. Weapons are one of the last products still produced in America. Is that the sign uh, of the end of a civilization when weapons are its last product? Well, especially since all of the cost overruns are covered. It's not really capitalism. Um, you're guaranteed to make money. Uh, through weapons. And Seymour Melman, a few years ago, was writing about the distortion of the economy by the military-industrial complex. He wrote about how when New York City wanted to order new subway cars, there was there's, they had to order them from Japan because there was no buddy in the United States manufacturing subway cars anymore because why would you build them when you can build tanks uh, where your profit is guaranteed? And, of course, it's a, a dead-end street. In the case of Scranton, they're making shells. Um, this stuff is exported over to the Saudis to fire on the Yemenis or Iraq or Afghanistan. All of that taxpayer investment is obliterated, and then they make new ones. So, yeah, the distortion of the economy, part of the distortion, uh, along with deindustrialization and offshoring, has been the parasitic defense industry, which consumes staggering, along with the Pentagon, staggering sums of uh, taxpayer resources when you count, I mean, officially the budget's around $600 billion, but when you count other parts of the defense budget that are outside of the, the formal Pentagon budget, you're talking about a trillion dollars a year. Yeah, a trillion dollars a year. I mean, it almost makes Eisenhower's quote uh, way back there about the military-industrial complex rather quaint. I mean, it's military, it's industrial, it's media, it's intelligence. It's 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 expanded beyond uh, even his dire prediction, hasn't it? Yes, it has. Um, and and you're right about media. I mean, remember, General Electric is a huge media empire. Uh, so, um you know, this, and this is what happens at the end of an empire. Uh, um, to go back to Rome, the Roman, ancient Roman Empire was trying to field an army of a million soldiers, uh, which it just couldn't afford. And uh, as soon as the dollar is no longer the reserve currency, which will happen one day, uh, the economy will go into free fall. Uh, and this kind of military adventurism will become unsustainable 
economically and, and see a huge contraction of the American empire. You write about uh, in, in the book, and, and, and just beginning with uh, in this first chapter of Decay, about the later stages of, of capitalism. Are, are we in that now? And, and what might be a defining moment uh, for this, how, how we entered it, and how, and how does this end? Well, y- yeah, we are clearly in the uh, kind of terminal stages of uh, capitalism, and you can see if you look at the uh, economy and the way it's structured, uh, how prescient Karl Marx was about the peculiar dynamics of capitalism, uh, which he calls the bourgeois mode of production. So he understood that capitalism has within it the seeds of its own destruction. Um, He understood that... uh, capitalism, or in this case, corporate capitalism, creates ideologies, in this case, neoliberalism, uh, not because, I mean, it's it's an utterly utopian notion that somehow societies can uh, configure themselves around the dictates of the marketplace. Um, You create ideologies that serve the interests of the elites, and in particular, uh, the uh, economic elites. So, uh, in the in in the final stage of capitalism, uh, as Marx pointed out, there there are uh, developments that are very familiar to us. Um, you find that uh, capitalist enterprises, corporate enterprises, are unable to expand and generate profits at past levels, and so they begin to consume uh, the structures. The primarily governmental structures that sustain it. Um, and it preys upon a citizenry that has been increasingly impoverished, in this case in the name of austerity, uh, by building up uh, tremendous debt peonage. So we saw with the 2008 bailout, uh, tri- four, seven, whatever figure you want, trillion dollars, pumped in, uh, uh, essentially created money, fictitious capital, Marx would call it, uh, Nomi Prince calls it fake money, whatever you want, printed to bail out the banks. And all they did was hoard it uh, and and, and give it to them at virtually 0% interest. There were actually central banks in Europe that were giving money at negative interest, meaning they were paying you to take their money. So uh, you, you... and then what happens is that system, rather than invest it in manufacturing or producing anything, uh, it is used to sustain this tremendous debt peonage. Um, so that's the student loan crisis, now over a trillion dollars, uh, the housing uh, bubble, which is returned, uh, credit card debt. So if you're late on your credit card, suddenly you're paying 28% interest, because even though this money has been borrowed at 0% interest, they still have to pay it back. So they feed off of uh, the underclass. At the same time, uh, they uh, privatize uh, all aspects of governmental services. So you're watching Betsy DeVos do this with education. 70% of the intelligence work for the United States is carried out by private contractors like Bose, Allen, Hamilton, where Edward Snowden work. 99, 99% of Bose Allen Hamilton's budget comes from uh, the state. 
uh, and you talked about Scranton. I use Scranton as an example uh, where the falling tax revenue, uh, coupled with the fact that in 2008, a lot of these municipalities saw upwards of 40 percent of their pension funds and investments wiped out uh, through financial fraud, are selling off utilities, uh, sewer systems, which is true in Scranton, the parking authority, which is true in Scranton. And of course, what happens is once these are captured by corporations, rates rise tremendously, putting more pressure on, uh, on the underclass, uh, creating more suffering with a consolidation. This is what all these mergers are about, the consolidation of global markets. You create these vast monopolies, and they, in essence, are, are become more powerful than the states themselves. I mean, really, in the final stages of what we call capitalism, it's not even capitalism because these corporations are just feeding off of government expenditures. I mean, the defense industry being one of the most egregious with $612 billion a year, uh, the fossil fuel industry, which, which uh, gets about $5.3 trillion a year in hidden costs to keep burning fossil fuels, this is according to the IMF. Uh, and that's in addition to the $492 billion in direct subsidies offered by governments through write-offs and write-downs and land-use loopholes. So there's a kind of cannibalization of the very uh, structures uh, that maintain uh, a democratic capitalist society. And that's certainly what we're watching. And so... Many people uh, use the word uh, collapse, that, uh, that we are really collapsing, kind of imploding in and on, in on ourselves. And so I'm kind of wondering, near, I've just jumped to the end of your book. You say, uh, you'd say about, about 2030 is kind of when the American empire implodes. Right. Well, that, that's not my figure. Uh, that is uh, Alfred McCoy's figure, the historian. I would be very wary to give you an exact date, although, as you point out, uh, he does. In his book, In the Shadows of the American Century, which is a good, very good book, it's worth reading, he talks about all of the signs that the American empire is crumbling or collapsing, as you say. He argues, I think correctly, that, and, and Trump, of course, has accelerated this, is that in essence, the retreat of American power, the ability to project power, creates a kind of global vacuum that is filled by another superpower, maybe China, or carves up the world in, into a kind of multipolar world among a few countries, Russia, China, India, Brazil, Turkey, uh, South Africa. Or it may just be that there's a, this kind of global coalition of transnational corporations and multilateral military forces like uh, NATO that kind of forge a supranational nexus that supersedes any nation. But whatever happens by every measurement from financial growth and infrastructure investment to advanced technology, supercomputers, space weaponry, America is in irrevocable decline. Now, China became the world's second largest economy in 2010, which is also the same year it became the world's leading manufacturing nation, 
uh, supplanting the United States, which had dominated the world's manufacturing for over uh, a century. I, I think we have to acknowledge, as McCoy writes, that the United States, by with its invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan uh, 17 years ago, made the greatest strategic blunder in its history. Uh, this is also characteristic of late empires, where they engage in these military fiascos. Historians call it micro-militarism. So, for instance, the Athenians in the Peloponnesian War invaded Sicily, and their entire fleet of 200 ships are, are sunk. Thousands of their soldiers are killed, and this triggers revolts throughout the empire. It triggers the end of the empire. Britain in 1956 attacks Egypt in a dispute over the nationalization of the Suez Canal and then has to, largely because of pressure from Eisenhower, has to withdraw in humiliation. And this empowers a string of Arab nationalist leaders, including Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, uh, and doomed British role. role. British Empire had been in decline since the end of World War I, but it finished it. What was most devastating was, of course, at that point, the pound sterling no longer became the reserve currency, and the British economy uh, dramatically contracted. So we are checking off the list that past empires in decline have carried out. And I, I just think by any objective measure, and all you have to do is drive across the United States and look at Cleveland or Detroit, or I mean, it's just one industrial wasteland uh, after another. Um, and of course, part of it is that at the end, you lack competent leadership. You get figures like Caligula or Nero in, in Rome. Um, and we get Trump. Let's, uh, let's sure, talk. Trump, let's Trump talk. fits exactly into that kind of uh, this, these buffoonish figures who arise at the end. Yeah, Chris Hedges uh, is the author of America, The Farewell Tour, uh, if you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit. So, yeah, let's talk for a second about Trump. I, I find the left, as such, all about resisting Trump, but I, I, I don't know if that's deep enough. Um, he's the, re the result, it seems, not the cause of our demise, as you write. In fact, you said Trump is the face of our collective idiocy. Another sign of America's farewell is, is the election of, of, of maniacs like this guy. Uh, so that said, talk more about that, but would Clinton have reversed the corporate state? I mean, is there really any essential difference between Democrats and Republicans uh, with there this is, America collapsing? There is this difference. I mean, the, the Democratic Party represents the more enlightened, less racist part of the ruling economic elite, and the Republican Party uh, represents this raw nativism, racism, misogyny, homophobia. Uh, but in terms of economic policies, no. Uh, I mean, Trump and the Republican Party have accelerated the assault, clearly. I mean, the tax cut is a perfect example. The obliteration of the EPA, the push to privatize public education by Betsy DuVos. But uh, none of these policies were... They may be on hyperspeed under the Trump administration, but uh, Duncan and uh, Obama's uh, Secretary of Education was also a huge supporter of charter schools, of privatizing education, not to the extent of divorce. 
Uh, Obama's environmental policies were very weak, especially at the end. He opened up drilling in, in all sorts of places where it had been forbidden before. Uh, Obama's assault on civil liberties were actually worse than those carried out by George W. Bush, including Obama's misinterpretation of the 2002 Authorization to Use Military Force Act as giving the executive branch the right to assassinate American citizens, in this case, Anwar al-Awlaki, the radical cleric, as well as his 16-year-old son. Uh, Obama signed into law Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, and I sued him in federal court. We won. He appealed. And unfortunately, this law was, Section 1021 was upheld on appeal by denying me standing, not by actually ruling on its merits. But this overturned the prohibition on using the military to carry out uh, domestic law enforcement. And according to Section 1021, U.S. citizens who are deemed to be terrorists or have relationships with something called associated forces, whatever that is, can be seized, held in military detention facilities, and denied due process. This was all Obama. What is frightening for me about the Democratic Party is that it is seeking to deflect its own complicity in the rise of the corporate state, or what John Ralston Saul calls the corporate coup d'etat in slow motion, by focusing on Russia as somehow responsible rather than massive social inequality and the revoking of our most basic constitutional rights, including the right to privacy, as what engendered the rage, that, and it's a legitimate rage, that saw the election of Trump and saw a very serious challenge to the Democratic elites in the primaries with Bernie Sanders. In fact, I think that we now, looking back on that period, can say that the Democratic establishment really stole the nomination from Sanders uh, through a series of mechanisms such as denying independent voters the right to vote in the Democratic primary, even though, of course, taxpayers pay for the primaries. Uh, many of Sanders' supporters were not registered Democrats. The theft of the very uh, overt theft of the Nevada caucus, the use of superdelegates so that even before one vote was cast, Hillary Clinton had 30 percent of the votes needed for the nomination and, of course, then finally, the corruption of the DNC so that it was a, an appendage of the Clinton campaign and then the massive amounts of corporate money. But the Democratic Party, in order to acknowledge that truth, would then have to offer some kind of serious reform. And the figures who run the party, Tom Perez and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, are creations of the corporate state. Without corporate backing and corporate money, they wouldn't hold power. I think that they, you know, they may recognize the fragility of the ship of state, but they're not about to give up their first class cabins, even if they bring the whole thing down. And, and we've seen that with the purging of the progressives within the Democratic Party, many Sanders supporters, and just the refusal to engage in serious campaign finance reform or change rules that fix the system on behalf of the elites. I mean, most of these superdelegates are lobbyists and corporate donors and, you know, high-powered politicians. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that the, focusing on the personality of Trump, however repugnant Trump is, and he certainly is, misses the point. When society sees up and political systems no longer respond to the most basic concerns and needs of the citizenry, 
then you vomit up these figures. I watched it in the former Yugoslavia, and the war in Yugoslavia was caused by the economic meltdown of Yugoslavia. It was not caused by ancient ethnic hatreds. And so you had an ineffectual or impotent liberal elite that anger uh, resulted in the rise of figures like Radovan Karadzic or Franjo Tuzman or Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, and and uh, you go back, Weimar was the same. So people forget that in 1928, the Nazi party and most of the leaders of the Nazi party were kind of considered as buffoonish as Trump, uh, were polling in the single, single digits. But with the crash of 1929, you had Ebert and uh, the Social Democrats imposing horrific austerity programs to please the banking system, international banking system, including suspending unemployment insurance. That fueled the rise of fascism. And I, and I think that, of course, what we're playing with now is, uh, and it's coming, I don't know when, but uh, another economic meltdown, which many economists uh, feel will be worse than 2008 because there's no plan B. They can't lower interest rates any more than they've already lowered them. And at that point, whatever stability we have will be obliterated. And demagogues like Trump will do what demagogues always do, which is uh, take this incohate anger uh, and direct it towards the vulnerable, which will include undocumented workers, Muslims, the GBLT community, women, the misogyny runs deep, and of course, people of color, African-Americans. So, uh, and along with the press, I mean, and, and, the, and the rhetoric that he already is using is very incendiary and very frightening. And we can't forget that we are a very violent culture. Um, we are awash in weapons. Uh, we suffer these nihilistic mass shootings every few days, including school shootings, mall shootings. At, at that point, the situation in America could become very, very ugly. This is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm speaking with Chris Hedges. He's the author of America, The Farewell Tour. More to come. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click donate. I'm John Schock. This is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm speaking with Chris Hedges, author of America, The Farewell Tour. And Trump, you know, he, he is he's a creation of the media. It, it, it just, you watch yeah. World Wrestling Federation videos with him in it, and it, it, it's the same guy who's there as who's uh, supposedly uh, the president. Uh, and But the media, this is the thing that's sick, and you write this in the book, really, is that the media profited off of him. I mean, they make loads of money um, talking about Trump. And... Um, uh, and f so I want to turn to the media a second here. The, the half a dozen corporations, um, I'm quoting you, half a dozen corporations that own most of the media have worked overtime to sell a bewildered public the fiction that we're enjoying a recovery. All right, but so if the media are owned by half a dozen corporations, and then the media really, and you, you know this more than anyone, being a, a real part of it, really is propaganda and fiction in a lot of ways. So when Trump calls media fake news, is he right, and, and, and is he right, and how is he right, and how is he wrong? 
Well, let's go back. I mean, Trump was this uh, kind of has-been real estate developer, several bankruptcies. His track record as a business person is awful, uh, including, of course, defrauding investors, contractors. And they create this uh, television show, The Apprentice, and a fictional persona. They give Trump a fictional persona. Mm -hmm. And that fictional persona he rides to the presidency. You're, you're very right that, that Trump is a creation of this media culture. Uh, and, you know, the people who produce The Apprentice have kind of done mea culpas. I mean, they knew that this was a fiction. They knew who Trump really was. But, of course, it was a useful fiction for creating a popular show and engendering profit. And then Trump runs... And because news organizations like CNN care solely about profit, not about news, Trump was far more entertaining than Bernie Sanders. And so I think there was a study that said that Trump's airtime was 23 times what Sanders was. I mean, they, they'd spend more time on an empty podium waiting for Trump to appear than they'd give to Sanders that day. And he was good for this reality television uh, culture that is seeped into our political life. And then what happens when Trump becomes president? And so you have the media, which gave him tremendous amounts of, even Trump acknowledges it, tremendous amounts of free airtime. Then, because he's irrational and erratic uh, and impulsive and not very bright, he feeds this kind of constant disequilibrium and this ongoing kind of reality-type national discourse. I mean, you see it now with Omarosa. Before that was Stormy Daniels. I mean, it's kind of endless. And so CNN's profits are, I think they made a, a billion dollars last year. I mean, they made more than they've ever made. They love it. And, and so it's good for them. It's actually good for Trump because the media is not actually covering the, the very serious issues including economic issues that grip most of the country, they're courtiers in the inner court, uh, kind of talking about the foibles of the Sun King and who the Sun King, what mistress the Sun King brought into the bedchamber today. Meanwhile, they have rendered large sections of this country, especially those who are under economic distress, invisible. As crude and vulgar and awful as Trump is, his taunting of the elites, you saw this when he ran against Jeb Bush or the Clintons, plays very well because many, many Americans are fully aware that these elites have sold them out in both parties. As you know from the book, I report out of Anderson, Indiana. Anderson uh, used to have huge GM plants. Over 25,000 people work there at good wages, they were unionized in the UAW, they had pension plans, they had health care, and Clinton passes NAFTA, and by 2006, these plants have been closed, and many of them bulldozed into vacant lots, all moved to Monterey, Mexico, where Mexican workers without benefits are paying $3 an hour. So in Anderson, uh, a lot of these old UAW workers supported Sanders, but they weren't going to vote for Clinton, ever. 
Uh, and it had nothing to do with Russia or Comey or anyone else. It had to do with their anger at being betrayed by Clinton and by a Democratic Party establishment that destroyed their lives, that destroyed their community. And Anderson, like all deindustrialized pockets in America, is a ruin. And that took away a future for their children. Chris Hedges, my guest. His book is called uh, America, the Farewell Tour. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes. I want to talk about three. Th- there, there are a number of things I want to go with your book, but I want to talk about the prison system. Uh, you, you teach uh, in the New Jersey prison system, and what I got from your book just blew me away. Uh, that one of the reasons, and maybe it's the key reason, that we have so many people in prison in the United States is to provide slave labor. Uh, for corporations, I, I, I guess I really didn't connect with that. Can, we can expect more people becoming incarcerated, not less, uh, because of this. What have you learned about American prisons? Right. Well, so we have the for-profit prison system, which is uh, not a huge percentage of the prison system. And uh, this is Geo Group. And they primarily uh, hold or often hold uh, undocumented workers who have been seized by ICE and are about to be deported. But within every prison now, there are huge for-profit concerns. So uh, you have uh, the phone service, which is privatized, gouging prisoners and their families four or five times the phone rates that you and I pay. You have food service companies, Aramart, providing food, which I can tell you is pretty much inedible. Uh, and we have many cases with Aramart providing prison food where there's huge examples of uh, food poisoning and people get very sick. The commissary is privatized. And of course, the bad food pushes people to buy the commissary in the prisons I teach in. People kind of live on ramen noodle soup uh, and coffee that they buy from the commissary. You have the medical services, which are privatized. Um, So they don't provide adequate care because it's expensive. And they charge They charge prisoners for every visit. And now you're seeing, in the name of austerity, of course, states are no longer providing prisoners with essential items that they once were given when they were incarcerated, including shoes, extra blankets, even toilet paper. Um, You have prison systems uh, where they're beginning to charge people for electricity, room and board. And these people who work, and and we have about 2.3% million prisoners, that's 25% of the world's prison population, although we are only 5% of the world's population, they work, one million of them work for for for-profit companies. Hewlett-Packard, Victoria's Secret, McDonald's makes its uniforms in prison, and they pay them, you know, 25 cents an hour. In New Jersey, it's 22 cents an hour. And in some states like Alabama, uh, they pay them nothing. Uh, So it's kind of like script, you know, you're, you're giving script It used to be the old coal miners would get script and they'd have to use it at the company store. Prisoners are in a a very similar condition. Their wages are virtually slave. I mean, it's a a form of neo-slavery. They are going broke in prison, and then they're forced to take out prison loans to pay for medications or legal fees or commissary items. Uh, And you're building a system of debt peonage inside prison that is as prevalent as it is outside prison. And so uh, along with this, you've seen states uh, impose an array of fees on prisoners. I mean, mean, just little little and big. Stamps, uh, for instance, have a 10% surcharge. If you 
in the New Jersey system want to go for a 15-minute deathbed visit for an, only an immediate family member or a 15-minute visit to a funeral home, you have to pay for the overtime wages of the guards uh, and the mileage. And that charge can be as high as $945.04. Uh, when you're making $28 a month, that can take years to be paid off. And then we also see within the court system, when you're sentenced, they will impose all sorts of monetary fines, thousands of dollars. So we've seen corporations privatize most of the prison functions that were once handled by the state or by the, by the federal government. And this has created a system where people who are released uh, are being released, even though they may have spent a couple decades in prison, are being released heavily in debt. And it's very hard, as you know, to get a job, especially if you have a felony conviction. If you can't pay back that debt, you're funneled right back into the prison. So that's why I can't remember his name, but the, the case of the, the man whose taillight was out and he was pulled over and he ran and he was shot and killed, he had warrants because of debt. He knew that he would have gone right back into prison. He would have lost his job. It would have been devastating for his family. So Dostoevsky, who points out uh, quite presciently, and Dostoevsky, along with Chekhov, uh, they were both prison reform advocates and wrote about prisons, pointed out that if you want to see or rip away the veil and understand power within a society, look at a prison. Look what it does to its most vulnerable. I think that when we look at the corporate, the predatory nature of corporations on the poorest of the poor and what they're doing, that's kind of the model for the rest of us because you have prisons now in the United States making appeals to corporations saying, look, uh, you don't have to pay a living wage. These workers can't organize. If they cause any problem, they're expelled and put in solitary confinement. And so there's no reason to go to Bangladesh. We have our own sweatshops here. They're called prisons. And I think we have to understand that these large corporations now that are making so much money, I mean, now they put email systems in. I think it's 40 cents an email. It's incredibly high to send and receive emails. We now have corporations that are making so much money by preying upon prisoners and their families that they have a, a, a well-oiled lobbying institution that is in Washington making sure these prisons remain full and making sure that the recidivism rate remains high. That's why educational programs, vocational programs are, are being eliminated in many prisons because they, the way the system is designed is for these people to come back in. They have to keep these prisons full because that's how they make make their money. Yeah. You know, the issues that you have selected and talk about in this book, America, the Farewell Tour, Chris Hedges, uh, I, I selected at first, when I look at them, they don't, they don't seem that they relate, but as I read your book, I realized, boy, they do relate. They, they're, they're all related. Uh, this is my interpretation. Uh, as selling of people as commodities uh, yeah. to the destruction of human beings as human beings. Yeah, that's it. And, that, that, and, and when you have no protection at all, as prisoners and their families do not, you can see how far these people, how, these, how far these corporations will go how ruthless and vicious and venal they are. I mean, one of the things that always breaks my heart is that 
uh, for many of the incarcerated, the only contact they have with their children is the phone. And yet the phone becomes so prohibitively expensive, they can't speak to their kids. Now, I should say that there is a resistance movement inside the prison that's not received the kind of press and publicity that it should, but you, I, the prisoners get it, and they have instituted over the past few years work stoppages, took place in the Georgia prison system. They carried out a strike that lasted for several days in 2010, and you have prison leaders who argue now that the only way to break the back of this system is to refuse to work. And they're, in the words of the Free Alabama Movement, the only way to stop slavery is stop being a slave. Because everything in a prison is done by prison labor. The guards' food is cooked. I mean, there's a barber shop in the prison where I teach. Then you walk by and prisoners are in literally barber uniforms cutting the hair of the guards. One of the highest paid jobs in the prison is shining the boots of the guards. It's. I think they're right. I think that that the only way to fight back now is to support these massive work stoppages, these strikes, because you have a system, a corporate system now, where those in prison have become highly profitable. I mean, if you live, if you're a poor person of color and you live a live in a deindustrialized section of a city, you're worth nothing. Your body is worth nothing to corporations on the street. But uh, if you're locked in a cage, uh, you can generate fifty or $60,000 a year. So prisons for me are uh, an important window into the intention uh, of these corporations. Uh, and what we are moving slowly towards is the kind of corporate totalitarianism that China has imposed with its slave labor. I mean, you have, and of course, Apple will use these subcontractors where workers are not only poorly paid and live in overcrowded and unsanitary uh, dormitories, but uh, there's all sorts of wage theft, underpayment. That's why you have not only suicides, people climbing up on the tops of these dormitories, jumping off and killing themselves, but tremendous and unchecked abuse. And remember, these, these kind of huge upwards of 10,000 of workers, these huge, and these are the products that we consume, um, they have state-of-the-art security. We can't get in. We can't film it. We can't see it. The same way the animal agriculture industry has used terrorism laws, ag-gag laws, to prevent us from seeing how they torture and abuse uh, animals that um, you know many people, not myself, I'm a vegan, consume. So, yeah, I, I think it is. I think you're right. I think these are all interlocking pieces. And and once you go down to that level, I mean that's why I spent the last two years traveling around the country doing it, um, the picture of the United States is quite frightening. I have a few minutes left, uh, Chris Hedges, and I want to talk to you really about um, the resistance aspect. The, the, you, uh, you and I are both Presbyterian ministers, and every now and again we ministers uh, ask each other to talk about our sense of call, um, you know, the, the, the moral compass, that, why we're here, what we're doing, what, what is resistance, and, and, um, and, and even some of that can be confused. I want you to talk about some of these, the, resist, the various resistance movements, for example, 
positively and negatively. Uh, Antifa, the anti-fascist movement, for example, is popular in Portland. They've had a big deal here with the, you know, um, protesting the the white rights group. But but they have uh, issues too. And I want to tell me about healthy ways and unhealthy ways uh, of resistance and what it is we really are resisting. Right. Well, as you are probably well aware, I have been very critical of both Antifa and the Black Bloc. My, there is, in my book, a chapter called Hate, which is on, I spent time with these white hate groups, uh, Proud Boys, uh, Knights of the Alt-Right, uh, the Three Percenters, but I'm also very hard on Antifa and the Black Bloc, because they engage in the same kind of uh, lust for violence that I see among these white racists and neo-Nazis because they embrace well, they call it diversity of tactics, but basically they only have one tactic uh, because they embrace this kind of confrontation. It plays into the hands of the state. First of all, all of these groups are heavily infiltrated. We, right. we underestimate the extent to which the state, the resources of the state, any basic counterinsurgency manual including the one issued by the U.S. Army, will tell you that if you have a popular movement, the goal is to demonize it and make people frightened of it. Uh, and I think that these groups play precisely that role. The, the language of violence is one the state can speak better than we can. Uh, I was overseas for 20 years. Uh, we have 60,000 people in the special forces. These are death squads. Um, we're never going to compete on that level. That's the first thing. The second thing is that all revolutions, and I think at this point, revolution is the right word. We have to overthrow corporate power. All revolutions are fundamentally nonviolent. I mean, even Lenin uh, was very angry at the anarchist violence, which he saw correctly as hampering the uh, revolutionary movement uh, against czarism. As the theorists of revolution have pointed out, Crane Brinton, Jeffrey Davies, and others, no revolutionary movement succeeds unless significant portions of the security apparatus and the civil bureaucracy defects. So you send the Cossacks in to break the bread riots in Petrograd, and the Cossacks refuse. In fact, they join the rioters. The uh, czar doesn't allow, he has to abdicate on a railway carriage. He doesn't even get back to the city. Um, Same was true, I covered the revolution the uprising in East Germany, Eric Honecker, been the communist dictator for 19 years, sends in an elite paratroop division to fire on the uh, demonstrators. Uh, the local authorities in Leipzig, communist authorities, refuse to allow them to deploy on the streets. Honecker's out within an hour. That's our only hope. I- I'm not a pacifist. I was in Sarajevo during the war. I-, I understood that there are moments when you have forces seeking your own annihilation, which the Serbs were doing when you are forced to embrace violence, although, as I write in my first book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, that does not save you from the poison of violence. Uh, but what we're talking about is is overthrow. That's different. That's different from a foreign occupation, as we see in Iraq or as we see with Israel and Gaza. And so I look at Antifa and, and Black Bloc as kind of, you know, this idea that uh, resistance is catharsis. No, it's not catharsis. It's about thinking tactically and strategically 
to get rid of these people. And, and so I have been quite uh, critical because I think they're an impediment and I think they play into the hands of the very structures we have to destroy. Yeah, play into the hands. I think that there's there's something about that. I mean, in, increasing the, the militarized police in some ways, as well as another element, not just them, but about other groups of, 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 of from the left of wanting to uh, censor the speech or stop the speech of, of, of people that they don't think are, are speaking correctly. And, and that also... Ultimately, tell me what you think about it. I have an opinion uh, about censorship, but I think that censorship ultimately always eventually hurts the most marginalized. Well, sure, always, because if you allow the state to start to censor, um, the people who are going to get most censored are is the left, not the right-wing neo-Nazis who spew racist can't. Um, and that's we're the ones who are going to get censored. We're already watching it. You have the imposition in the name of combating fake news, the imposition of algorithms by Google, Facebook, Twitter, that divert readers away from left-wing sites. So traffic at these sites, alternates dropped by 63%, uh, World Socialist website by, I don't know, 70 or 80%. Truthdig has seen its impressions. Impressions are when, you like, if I had written an article on imperialism and you typed it into Google before the imposition of the algorithms, you would have been directed or that would have been one of the articles that came up. Now it doesn't. Uh, and so uh, that referral through impressions on Truthdig has declined over the last 12 months from uh, over 700,000 to below 200,000. And it's a steady decline as they perfect their algorithms. Um, if you type in the name Julian Assange, for instance, uh, that will not direct you to sites that... Um, uh, support uh, WikiLeaks as I do, uh, and uh, and so that coupled with net neutrality, uh, I think, is indicative of the fact that the power elites are frightened. They're frightened because the neoliberal ideology of global capitalism it no longer has any credibility across the political spectrum, and so their critics, uh, who have such as myself or Chomsky or anyone else has been already pushed to the margins of the media landscape are now more of a threat and more of a target. Uh, so getting into this game of censorship is one uh, that those, and history bears this out, are, are, uh, is a game we're going to lose. Chris Hedges, last question for you. Uh, a sign of hope for people of conscience. You talk about resistance. Uh, the, the issue is not really political, but it's spiritual and moral. Can you, can you, can you kind of conclude uh, uh, with that? Sure. I mean, that's, you know, that's what resistance entails. It, 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 uh, it, it, in order to resist successfully, it entails uh, accepting all sorts of qualities that the consumer, are, the hedonism of consumer society tells us we should flee from, uh, which includes self-sacrifice, uh, even suffering. Uh, it's not rational. It's not about the pursuit of happiness. It's about the pursuit of freedom. Uh, it accepts that even if we fail, there is an inner freedom and dignity that comes with defiance. Uh, and perhaps this may be the only dignity and freedom and, and in some ways true happiness uh, we will ever know. Uh, as many Martin Luther King and others have pointed out, uh, resistance is really the supreme act of love. Uh, most of those who resisted successfully, those icons, that we all hold up, Sitting Bull, Malcolm X, Martin, Emma Goldman, were 
defeated, at least in the calculation of the powerful. But the power of their moral presence and their courage is one that sustains resistance and rebellion itself. And in that sense, I do argue, as you correctly point out, that there is a a spiritual element to resistance, maybe even a religious, not, not, I don't mean necessarily in a formal orthodox way. I, one can, in my mind, uh, lead the moral or, the, or even the religious life without ever being part of a religious group or embracing a particular, particular doctrine. It is about battling radical evil. It's about becoming a whole and complete human being. It's about overcoming estrangement. Uh, it's about honoring the sacred. Uh, and in the end, it's about being free, because when you carry out acts of resistance at that moment, you are a free man or woman. Chris Hedges, America, the Farewell Tour, a very important book. Thank you for all your years of work and for spending time with me today and for this book. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Every week you hear Progressive Spirit on radio stations all across the country. You can also catch us on podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shuck. Be well.